Oh yes, Lord, we lift your name up high. We thank you that you're here, God. Oh, we love you, Lord. And everyone who longs for truth, needing hope and strength renewed, come and meet the Savior of the world. And everyone who longs inside, desperate for the words of life, Come and meet the Savior of your soul. God is with us now. His love reigns now. His love reigns now. Saved by grace and power. His love reigns now. His love reigns now. God is with us now. Everyone who lives in Christ Died to self and raised to life Come and praise the Savior of the world And everyone who perseveres Faith will overcome all fears Come and praise the Savior of your soul God
Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh, oh my soul, and worship His holy name, and sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship Your The sun comes up, it's a new day dawn. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. So bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name, and sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship Your holy name, cause You are rich in love. You're slow to anger Your name is great And your heart is kind For all your goodness I will keep on singing Ten thousand reasons for my heart to find Oh, and bless the Lord, oh my soul Worship your holy name. My eyes are on you, Lord. Worship your holy name. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near. And my time has come Still my soul will sing your praise Unending on that day And on that day When my strength is failing The end draws near And my time has come Still my soul will sing your praise Unending Oh, we bless you, Lord. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. Worship His holy name. And sing like never before. Oh, my soul. I'll worship your holy 
thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone You're a good, good father It's who you are It's who you are It's who you are And I'm loved by you It's who I am It's who I am It's who I am And I see Many searching for answers Far and wide But I know We're all searching for answers Only you provide And you know Just what Do I? 
What an honor for us to worship you, Lord, to be in your presence today, to gather together, Father. And I thank you for your, your being with us in every space where we are, Father, in, in every home. Uh, we pray for your presence, Lord, and for your grace and your goodness over us as we continue in this service, Father, being together. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's so great to be with you today. I want to, particularly Hatfield South, just first of all, thank you all for participating in our faith promise. Uh, it's still ongoing, and you're more than welcome to continue to pledge to faith promise, but I do want to thank those of you that have pledged already. And um, we, we're excited about what God can do through our community uh, and beyond our community also. Today, we're starting with a, a new series that we're going to be doing for the next number of weeks. And it's a series where we're going to talk about identity. I think it's become, in our day and age, one of the, the things that is so upfront and very prevalent uh, everywhere we go is the issue of personal identity and how do I shape my personal identity. And I think it's a conversation that we're having in our culture, in, in our world right now. Uh, there's a lot being said and a lot being done in the area of personal identity. And, and I recognize that it's become a place of tension also. It's become a place often where parents and, and children perhaps don't see things the same way any longer, uh, where there's some generation gaps, where there's gaps between between different people groups, where there's gaps between just different life experiences. And it, and it can become a, a topic that leads to a bit of, of, of just abrasiveness and disagreement and, and people feeling left out, people feeling uh, like they're not being understood and heard. And so my heart really in doing this series is to, for us as a community at least, to create a space where we can have conversation within the biblical framework of what the Bible teaches us about identity. So we're going to take a really a look at issues of personal identity from a biblical perspective so that when we discuss and when we have conversations in our homes, uh, in our families, uh, with friends, in, in colleagues, wherever we're going, uh, for us that are out there with the calling of going to make disciples, that this is a very important area where we are able to have conversations with people, not fight with people, but have conversations with people, good conversations where we can share truth uh, with each other and wherever we have the opportunity to share truth about how the Lord sees us in terms of uh, personal identity. And it is so, certainly something that the Bible has a whole lot to say about. Uh, I want to thank uh, Brian Rosner for his book, uh, Known by God, A Biblical Theology of Personal Identity, um, that I've been using as uh, one of my main resources for this, uh, for this series. And particularly today, I've drawn some things from that book. So, so thankful for his work in that. Who are you really? Who are you as a person? If I had to ask you, what is your self-identification? Well, how do you describe yourself to somebody? Um, it, it's, a, it's perhaps something that is sometimes a little harder to do than at other times. It's certainly something that changes our view of ourselves, our identity that we have in terms of ourselves. But it is this very human thing, this actually quite, quite uniquely human reality, is that we have a concept 
of self. Marilyn Robinson observes that human beings have the odd privilege of existence as a coherent self, the ability to speak the word I. Just the fact that you have some view of yourself, that you can refer to yourself and, and, to the, and use the word I, speak something about who you are. And it's a very important part of who we are and, and, and how we were created to exist. And it's in fact for that reason that I want to remind us the Bible places a high value on, the, on personal identity and how we think about ourselves. What we think of when we think about ourselves is important in the scripture. And dare I say, you know, perhaps the voice you hear the most in the world is your own voice. The voice that describes the world and you to yourself is the voice that dominates in, in, in our lives. And what does that voice say? Where does that voice get its information from? What the voice that your inner voice, what it's saying to you about yourself, where does your inner voice get its information, its viewpoint? The Bible tells us that it is very important that we think of ourselves appropriately. In Romans 12, verse 3, Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So the scripture here is clear, tells us, we do think of ourselves and we should think of ourselves. The scripture here doesn't say don't think of yourself. It doesn't even say don't have a high opinion of yourself. It just says don't have too high opinion of yourself or don't have an inappropriate opinion of yourself. And I think the can, same can be applied that you can say don't think of yourself too lowly. A, a, a good idea of self is very important in life. For a strong society to exist, we need individuals that has a clear and robust idea of who they are and, and have a good framework of personal identity. Your idea, what you think of when you think of yourself is very important. What Paul tells us, when we think of ourselves, we must do so with sober judgment. That word sober is an important word. It's the word sophroneo in the Greek, and it literally means to be of sound mind or to be temperate. To be temperate in your thinking. Now, I think when we hear the word sober mind, our minds cannot help but go to the other side, which is to have a drunk mind. Now, I don't know if you've been around drunk people uh, enough. Um, I grew up in a home where my father was an alcoholic, so, so I've certainly seen my fair share of drunkenness uh, when I was younger. And you know what, what we know of drunk people is they lose their balance, <laughs> physically and mentally and emotionally. They lose their balance. They, they're no longer of sound mind. They, they no longer know how to judge things, how to calibrate things. They, they overreact. They move into extremes when it comes to, to how they deal with this, their environment. And, and that's exactly, I think, the picture that Paul is warning us against, that when it comes to thinking of ourselves, we should have sober minds. Thinking of ourselves in a temperate manner, not overestimating or undervaluing, not going to the extremes, not forming extreme opinions, but have sober-minded opinions, uh, uh, opinions that are balanced, that hold a lot of different elements together. It's so important to have sober judgment, to weigh things correctly, to put things in the right order. It all incl is included in that concept of having sober judgment. So when I'm constructing, if you, if you dare say that, use that word, my view of myself, and, and I think so much of it 
it happens sort of involuntarily, you know, it subconsciously just happens. But when the view of who I am, my, my personal identity shapes, the scripture says to us, we need to do that with temperance, with, with having the right things in the right balance. But we do think of ourselves, and the scripture says, when we do so, do it appropriately. In Galatians 6 verse 3, Paul says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. And this is also an important thing, that this is, I suppose, the great challenge of having a view of yourself and your, and your personal identity is that you don't have a perfect view. The, the reality is we lie to ourselves all the time. I think perhaps the person we're the most dishonest with is ourselves. That so often this little voice that tells us about who we are and, and what our personal identity is and, and, and then how we look at the world, it, it tries to deceive us a lot of the time. And, and we've got to be, you know, recognize that, that this little voice inside of us, this, this where we shape our personal identity, it cannot always be trusted. And, and a lot of the time, it can be, can't be trusted. And, and that's why I think, you know, one of the mantras of today, when it comes to self-identity, that the world uses so much is problematic. And, and it's this, this mantra of be true to yourself. You know, if you want to know who you are, then just be true to yourself. Do what you believe is right to do and, and just live out of your inner deepest sense of who you are. Um, and, and we put it in different other ways. We say, uh, follow your heart or think for yourself, resist external pressure and be willing to stand out from the crowd. Uh, be true to yourself um, captures the fullness of our commitment to authenticity as a moral ideal, somebody said. We, we're thinking that the, 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 one of the highest things we have to pursue in life is that I am myself and that I'm true to myself. And um, the problem with that statement is there's a couple of problems that, that we, I think, should have with that statement of be true to yourself and should temper that statement with. Um, and firstly, it is which, which self must you be true to? Because... We all have such conflicting, you know, desires and thoughts and, uh, and realities within our lives. Must I be true to the self that is trying to lose weight or must I be true to the self that wants that piece of chocolate cake? Must I be true to the self that finds that, that, that leftovers in the fridge and, 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 wants, and realizes others may also want of it and want to share that with others? Or must I be true to the self that wants to have it all for myself? Which self must I be true to? Um, and if I think of my neighbor, if, how far can I allow them to be true to themselves? You know, should I allow my neighbor at 2 o'clock in the morning that wants to self-express by playing his music as loudly as he can to be true to himself? You know, it, it, sort of that sentence has a little bit of value and very limited value, but it's not really a way to live life, I don't think. Logically, I don't think it really applies as a foundation for life. Just be true to yourself. Just be who you want to be. So who should I be? And that, I think, is the great question. Um, who should I be? How do I form this view of myself? What do I use to form a view of myself? How do I stay in line with what the Scripture says and have a sober judgment on myself? What do I use to form a view of myself? Now, Traditionally, there are 11 identity markers that people use to form a sense of personal identity. And I'm just going to mention these to you. These, these traditional identity markers are the following. Your race, ethnicity, and nationality. Your culture, your gender, and sexuality. Your physical and mental capacity. Your family of origin. Your age. Your relationships. 
your occupation, your possessions, your religion, your personality and character. These are all the traditional markers that, that people use to construct for themselves an idea of who they are, an idea of personal identity. And what we do with them is we prioritize them according to just who we are as people, perhaps according to our backgrounds, according to our environment, according to various different things. We, we put more stock in one or some of them than in others. We prioritize them. At certain times in our lives, some feel more important than others. Um, and, and so we're consistently dealing with these 11 markers. And, and, and you can imagine sort of moving between them and, and selecting and using them to give as information and to draw into my life and to say, Based on these realities, this is who I, I am. And I think if you think about it, you can identify some of it in your own life, certainly identify some of it in other people's lives. Let's look at, take a look at a few. I can't go through all 11 of them, but I, I want to do a couple of them to show you something as an example. Let's look at the first one. Race, ethnicity, and nationality. How important is your race to you or your nationality or, or your ethnicity to you. I think we, we don't often realize how important they are to us until we can get into a space of a different ethnicity or a different race or, or a different nation. It's, it's only when we sort of get exposed to those that are different to us in these areas that we start recognizing how, how much these things value to me and how much my identity has actually been shaped on my race or ethnicity or nationality. You know, it's only when you go and live in another nation for a period of time, for instance, that you really get to know your own value system from your nation. And I've certainly experienced that when, when you go for a little bit of a prolonged time. Uh, it's only when you, when you live with different ethnicities that you start becoming so much aware of yeah, how my ethnicity has shaped how my view of myself, I had the privilege as an early teen, you know, to go for the first time uh, to spend a weekend, for instance, in a, in a, in a, amongst a group of people from a different ethnicity than I was. Uh, and in South Africa, you know, we, we don't have to go far to, to, con to have great contact with people from different ethnicities. Uh, it's one of our great privileges in this nation. And I had that privilege from quite young. And I can so remember how suddenly I became aware so much more of who I am and what I value and, and tre treasure and what I think is important. Uh, and then as I met with other people, it started you know, challenging some of my own thoughts about myself just because I had something to contrast that by. Um, and so certainly I, our race, our, our ethnicity and our nationality, you know, is, is, plays a big important part in, in our um, self-identity and our, our personal identity. And you know, the scripture actually tells us that, that that's appropriate. That there is a certain level of identity that we do get from these things. The scripture certainly does not ignore ethnicity, but actually what the scripture tells us, that there is something in God's created order about ethnicity and race. That ethnicity and race existed, uh, and the possibility, the potential for it existed before we fell into sin, and will continue on in heaven for eternity, in Revelations, we see where the scripture says every tribe, every tri nation, every tongue will stand before God and praise God. So our ethnicity, there's something about who we are deeply embedded in us, about our ethnicity, our race. It's certainly part of God's created order. I like the way the Cape Town Commitment describes it or puts it. It says the following, ethnic diversity is the gift and plan of God in creation. 
It has been spoiled by human sin and pride, resulting in confusion, strife, violence, and war among nations. However, ethnic diversity will be preserved in the new creation. When people from every nation, tribe, people, and language will gather as the redeemed people of God, we confess that we often fail to, eth to take ethnic, ethnic identity seriously and value it as the Bible does in creation and redemption. We fail to respect the ethnic identity of others and ignore the deep wounds that such long-term disrespect causes. Ethnic identity matters, and the Bible tells us so. It doesn't brush us aside. It makes it part of the human experience and part of God's created order. But certainly, it has been impacted by sin in a huge way. But I'll say more about that later. Culture. Our culture may be, you know, difficult to actually describe in one sort of, you know, description because all of our cultures are a bit entangled. We, we have different parts from different places and different origins and our roots are tapped into different places. And, and, but we all have culture. And, um, you know, culture is like concentric circles that, that work you know, its way out and we have national culture and then we have certain cultures within our nation and then within that we have subcultures and, and so you can continue to break it down but we all have a, a sense of culture and again perhaps some, sometimes culture is not something we, we really recognize until we are removed from it and it's almost like a fish's relationship with water. If you ask a fish what is water it's difficult for them to answer until you take them out of the water then they know the value and importance of water. And if you have been in living in another culture for a period of time, you certainly then start becoming aware of your own culture, your own value system, how you value personal identity, how you value privacy, for instance, how you, how you value autonomy. All of these things are constructed different in different cultures. And, um, and, and again, the scripture talks about this. The scripture doesn't ignore this. The scripture actually values it. And, and I think the scripture supports this idea. Uh, as somebody said, to know who you are, you need to know whose you are. And the scripture speaks into culture. And I'll show you some more later about how the scripture says culture is a legitimate and valuable part of our identity as human beings. Let's go to the next one, gender and sexuality. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that this is a, this is a hot topic at the moment all over the world. And there's a lot that's happening in this space around identity. And how does my gender and my sexuality uh, form part of my identity? And again, this is one of those places where I really would like us to, to find what does the scripture say so that we, can, that we can base our view of these things on truth because that gives us the opportunity to come together as different generations, as different groupings of people, that we can come together because the scripture binds us together. It brings us into a common ground and in a common shape. How much of your sense of self is shaped by your gender and your sexuality? Um, like I said, in today's world, we are very aware of, of self-identity shaped by gender, gender roles, and sexuality. And I think perhaps even in some places, parts of the world and, and in some people, it's become the predominant thing that defines personal identity is my sexual expression, my, my gender, uh, my sexuality. And we live in a world where these things have become fluid. They can change according to the world's view of it, that, that your, your gender expression and even your, 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 your sex can, can be altered according to your identity and how you feel about your identity. Um, uh, the, the, the Bible is very aware of this classification. I mean, it's right there from Genesis 1. Gender is established and it is real and it is part of, of how God views the world and how God made the world. This is not 
a curse. This is not, this is not a result of failure that there are genders. This was in God's original plan. And again, we will see this going on into eternity, although heaven will be a different place where relationships between genders are very different, possibly than what we know now, because Jesus said there will be no more marriage, for instance, in heaven. So how does that change our relationships? But here on earth, the Bible definitely has a lot to say about our gender and our roles and how we live that. Um, you know, we live in a day and age now where, where your sexuality is no longer defined as a behavior, but it is defined as an orientation. And that's a rather new thing that developed not too long ago. Um, but what does the Bible say about our, our sexual behavior and, and our, our sexuality and our expression of that? And um, again, it's a, it's a valid, it's a, it's an, it's a very natural, necessary part of self-identity. But it cannot rest in, on that alone. And that's the point I'm trying to make and will make just now. Physical and mental capacity. How important is, is your appearance to you? How important is your, what the way you look in terms of your personal identity? Um, whether that's the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, the color of your skin. Whether that's the shape of your body, how tall you are, how short you are, how round you are, how, how, how muscular you are, you know, how, how big are your ankles, how, how big is the buttocks. You know, we do all of these things nowadays to, to define identity. And we live in a time and in an age where we have the tools uh, and the social uh, acceptance and mandate even to alter ourselves, to change ourselves so that our bodies will fit the view we have of ourselves and that, that we can sort of curate um, on social media, we can curate the image. And it may not be the real image, but at least it's the image the world will see of me because that's the image I want them to see. And, and even physically, we can change our bodies now to be able to make them look the way we want to and to self-identify and self-express in that. And the Bible, again, talks a lot about bodies and also about disability or differently abled people. We're living in a culture that's coming far more to terms. I mean, right now it's the Paralympics and we celebrate people that have challenges physically and, and even mentally and are able to overcome them and aspire to great things. And, and we're learning far more to be so much more celebratory of that. But, you know, that the Bible did that long time ago already. You know, the Bible didn't ignore or push aside people with different abilities. I think of Mephibosheth, you know, the son of Jonathan was invited to the table of the king to come and dine with him. And there we see just a, an approach of, of the scripture. We, we think of, of Jacob that was wounded and became a cripple. We think of Jesus' interactions, how much he did in the space of, of the lame and the, and the blind and, and people with all sorts of ailments, how he helped. And so certainly these things again are validated in the scripture and the scripture speaks a lot about it. And again, presents it to us in a way that says, these are part of our identity markers. Now, I don't have time to go through all 11, but what I've just done with you is I've tried to show you how, how each of these are, are real and in some way legitimate, even from Scripture. If we had more time, we could really dig into Scripture about it. And so you can go with every one of these 11. They all have some validity to it. But here's what the scripture tells us. The scripture tells us clearly, and I'm going to show you right now, that not one of these or even all of these together, you can trust enough to make your identity based on any of these realities. I want to take us to Paul. Paul was a person that actually spoke a lot about identity. 
And not only did he speak about it, but his life was such an example of godly identity. If you study Paul, you read Paul, you look at him, the way he behaved, you, you get such a good view of a person that had a secure, firm identity, that was a personal identity that was, that was built on the right markers and with the right order and was sober-minded in the way he approached things. And I want to show you some of those things in Paul's life. First of all, Paul said this in Galatians 3, verse 26. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. So everybody can be a child of God, can be equal before God through faith. Not, not universalist as in every person that is born, but every person that puts faith in Christ becomes a child of God. Again, because we've fallen away as being children of God. So this word child of God is a very important marker in the scripture in terms of our identity. You and I, we are children of God. We are part of God's family. More than what I'm part of any other family on earth, I'm part of God's family. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. No longer do we use the outer things of this world to self-identify, you know, simple as clothing or other things, possessions, material things. I identify with this fact that I have been baptized into Christ, that I am one with Christ. So Christ begins to form the basis of my identity. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, in relation to the fact that I'm a child of God, that I have been clothed with Christ, that I've been baptized into Christ, that becomes the superior, the ultimate, the foundation of my identity to the point that I no longer consider the other issues like, like male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile as predominant or dominating my identity, my self-identity. Those become secondary issues. Those become issues now that, 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 sorry, that finds their expression based on this first primary identity that I have, that I am a child of of God. That, and that's very important for us to, to recognize. Paul is not saying there are no more males and females. There's no more gender. That's not what he's saying. He's saying gender is no longer as important an identity marker as what these identity markers are. I'm a child of God. I'm, I'm, I'm clothed in, uh, with Christ and I'm baptized into Christ. He says whether I'm slave or free is no longer my identity marker that defines my life compared to these identity markers. That I'm a Jew or a Gentile no longer determines my identity. I have a deeper foundation for identity. I have something stronger that I use as my markers for identity, that my personal identity is shaped on. You are all one in Christ. And this is the fantastic thing. That's why I say when we come to the scripture and we understand scripture, it can unite us because we all have the same identity marker that, that provides the foundation. That from there, we, there's variety that develops, but we all stand on the same foundation, that we are one in Christ, that Christ is our identity. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. You are now part of God. And, and I want to know what God says about me. That defines me more than what anything else says about me, more than my own voice defines me, more than my culture's voice, my, my race's voice, my, 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 you know, my world's voice. 
defines me, what God says about me defines me because I am one with him. That's the, the foundation. So while all the other 11 identity markers that I mentioned to you are legitimate and are some form of an expression of my identity, they all now take a place lower than my identity in Christ. And that's what it means to be a Christian. When I'm a Christian, if I come to the issues of my, of my culture, for instance, I judge soberly. I no longer hold my culture up and worship and deify my culture in a sense and, and idealize my culture and say, you know, I'm South African or I'm American or I am British or I'm Russian or I am Nigerian and that defines who I am and I, and I make everything about that. I'm South African only as far as my true identity as a son and daughter of God permits me to be South African. My South Africanness serves my citizenship of the kingdom. And that's what we see in the life of Paul. Let's read how Paul treated this. He, he judged soberly. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 20, he said the following. Though I am free, I belong to no one. Though, sorry, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, although I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And he continues on. So can you see what he's, what he's doing? He's holding his culture lightly. What he's, what he's holding firm is that I am a child of God that I'm on a mission, that I've been sent by God to proclaim the gospel, to preach the good news. And the good news is this, that no longer do you have to identify yourself by that which is broken, but you can identify yourself by that which is eternal and true and good and loving. And that's who God made you to be. And you can be firm and secure in that. So Paul says, therefore, the fact that I'm a Jew, I hold that lightly. And where it needs to, I will adapt and change. And become like a Gentile. Uh, and, and, he, and he holds culture and ethnicity and, his, and even his racial expression. We can see he says, I hold those things lightly. I value them. I don't disregard them. But I use them to serve the purposes of the kingdom. He holds them very lightly. Yet we can see in the life of Paul there are other things that he holds very tightly to. That he holds fast to. That he does not compromise on. That he makes no changes on. And, and we'll see that just now. You see, because Paul believed there's a truth that defines all of life and that every one of us, our personal identity is shaped by this truth. And this truth, we're going to unpack a lot more in the following weeks. But this truth simply to say is that God created us and made us in his image for his pleasure, for his good, to live lives of pleasure and his good. And he created for us a world where we can do that. And therefore, Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 14 to 17. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the amazing truth about Christianity. Christianity, more than any other religion in the world, has translated across cultures, has moved across cultures. At a time, Christianity was predominantly in the Middle East. Then it moved 
from the Middle East into Europe. Then it moved into the Americas. Now our Christianity is, is really based within the, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere more. Wherever you go in the world, Christianity fits into the culture because Christianity is not a culture. Not like many other religions. You know, when some people come from a different religion, you know they're from that religion by the way they dress, the way they talk, the way... But Christianity is different. You can, you can keep a sense of your South Africanness. You can keep a sense of your West Africanness. You can keep a sense of your Europeanness, your being an American. You can keep all of that because what Christianity does, it redeems culture. It doesn't wipe it off the table. It brings it into its rightful place of as an expression of the variety of God based on the truth of who God is. At the fall, you know, everything we did, like the Cape Town Commitment said, was, was damaged. And we now express those things incorrectly. And we don't soberly judge them anymore. We put too much emphasis on certain things. Paul is an example for us that says, man, my job is to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to tell everybody the gospel. There's no nationality. There's no grouping of people that's not included in the gospel. Because the gospel is the message of salvation by faith, not by birth. Not by ethnicity, not by any other identity marker, but by faith in who Jesus is. And when I believe in Jesus, that changes who I am. I get born again, the scripture says. My identity is restored into that which God originally intended for my identity to be, be, be based on. And I become a person that expresses that identity. That's the heart of God for us. But you see... If we don't do that, if we take our identity and we shape it according to any other of the identity markers, it's our choice. We, we have a choice to do that. God gave us the choice to do that. But we must know that those things will harm us. And not only will they harm us, but they can destroy us. And I want to quickly show you that from Scripture. Paul carries on in Romans 1 verse 18, and he says the following. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godly, godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, what happens is if I take any of the traditional identity markers and I want to base my identity on that, I cause harm to myself. Firstly, because every one of those identity markers have been impacted by the fall and has been damaged by sin and is no longer completely true and is therefore no longer strong enough and cannot any one of their own or even all of them collectively together or some of them collectively cannot sustain the truth of identity because they've all been impacted by sin. That's what I spoke about earlier. That my view of race is not a perfect view anymore as a human being because it's been tainted by, by the lies of the devil and of sin. Our value of culture is not pure. Our view of gender is certainly not pure. There's not one single person on this earth that does not have to fight with their sexuality, that does not have to bring their sub sexuality into subjection under the rules and the, and the truth of God's kingdom. We're all wrestling with these things. And none of us can put faith on one of them and say, well, I'm going to self-identify as this 
as any of these markers because they've all been tainted and twisted and none of them has the strength. They will, f they will collapse under their own weight if we try and put the weight of identity on them, defining myself by one of them. It it's impossible. But there's something more dangerous within it. The moment I take one of these 11 identity markers or some of them and I lift them up and I say this well, I, I will identify myself by this. I make that thing in my life an idol. And the, the worst indictment against men in the scripture is idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when we put something else in the place of God. Trusting something instead of God and loving something more than God. When I'm saying I'm not going to allow God to give me my identity or to help me according to his righteousness and truth establish my identity. I want to create my identity and I'm going to select how I identify and I'm going to put my trust in these things. What I'm then doing is I'm putting God aside and I'm replacing him with other things to identify with. And the moment I do that, I set myself up in a very dangerous place where I will begin to serve that thing that I think will identify me, I actually begin to serve that identity. And that identity, I give lordship over my life. And I will make that identify, define me. I'm no longer in charge at that point. I'm no longer the one that is directing things. Suddenly now that thing will direct me. And this is the amazing thing with God. When I release everything to God, he gives me everything back. The only way to really have the right identity is to lose my identity in God because then he gives me my identity. It's a, it's a bit of a mystery how that works. But when you experience it, when you live in it, you know the freeing thing it is. That's why Paul said, I'm free. But I can choose to be a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles because I'm not captivated by my identity. My identity is given to me by God. Idols are not just unworthy of our trust. They also cause us serious harm because they degrade us. Whenever you make something else an idol, that is, and replace God with something else, that thing that you put in God's place will degrade you and will destroy you. We see this in Psalm 135, verse 15 to 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, so will all who trust in them. It literally says, if you begin to worship something, you become like that thing. And you will actually become less than that thing. Because obviously, think about it. When I worship something, I put, it, I put it above myself. I give it respect and honor and value as more than me. So if I put a piece of wood, if I carve out an idol out of a piece of wood and I begin to bow down before it, I'm physically positioning myself below that piece of wood. And what the scripture tells me is over time, I will start living like I'm less than that piece of wood. And that's the problem with idolatry. Anything I set up in in God's stead and begin to make that my idol. That thing becomes the cap of my life. And I begin to live lower than that. And I will be degraded and become less than that. And that's the danger. So when I take any identity marker, if I make culture my identity marker. And I define myself by my culture. And I fight for culture. I'm making something my supreme identity. 
that is less than God. And actually, that is not what God created me to be identified by. And I will begin to live less than what God intended me. I will begin to live down. I will begin to live lower than what God intended for me to live. Because God intended me for to live with sober judgment according to the holistic, complete view that he has of me. Now I'm defining myself. But my view, that is not a perfect view. That is a view that is a deceptive view on something. It makes me less. and My culture will begin to degrade me. It's amazing. The things we value the most in life will become the things that destroy us. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Every concept is a created thing. Culture is a created thing. Ethnicity is a created thing. My gender is a created thing. My sexuality is a created thing. My possessions are created things. My, my education is a created thing. And all of those things have been impacted by sin. And all of those things can change. And, and, and don't have the substance, the stability to hold me. And so when I begin to put my faith in those things, I degrade myself. And God then steps back and he says, well, if that's what you want to worship, because I gave you free will, I allow you to worship that. But you will face the consequences of the destruction of that. So if we begin to gender, uh, 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 worship our gender, if we begin to worship our sexuality and our sexual orientation and expression, and we hold that as our highest identity marker, we will see the degrading of that happens. And that's what we're seeing in the world right now. Sexuality is degrading and it's destroying people. Because we no longer hold it in its sober judgment in the rightful place in God. So let me just wrap up by saying this. So what I'm saying to you is there are identity markers that the scripture holds to, before us and addresses and brings into the story and the narrative of humanity. And it validates all of them, but it tells us their place, where they fit. And that none of them can ultimately be trusted. And that if we take any of those identity markers and we make them the, the, the foundation of our identity, that will destroy us. Because only God can be the foundation of our identity. So how does God become the foundation of our identity? That's what we're going to talk about from next week on. What does God say about us? I love Psalm 8 verse 4. One of the greatest proclamations of a man on this earth that started understanding something about these things when, when, when he wrote and he said, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. What is mankind? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. How does the scripture define us and tell us who we are? How do we begin to form personal identity by God's truth so that we don't get dis distracted and that we don't get deceived and follow the things of the world that will ultimately destroy us? I want to pray with you. Thank you for giving me time to be with you today. And for our younger people that are tuning into this, I, I, I want you to engage with this. And have, let's have conversations. Let's talk with your leaders. Let, let's really come to the scripture and understand the scripture about these things. But I want to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every person, every individual that has joined me on, on this service, in this service today. Every person that is young, that is old. 
from whatever background. Thank you that every single person matters to you. That you made us individuals. We are so unique, each of us, because you designed us that way. Because it was your desire for us. You didn't want a, 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 just a, a, a group of robots that are all the same. You wanted us to, to have different identities and to express those differently. And that's why you made us not just to look different, but to just be different. But Lord, we know it's only in you that that variety can be possible and be healthy. And so we want to come before you as a people. And, and I want every person, every one of us to come before you and say, thank you, Lord, for making me, me. Thank you, Lord, that I can know who I am because you want me to know who I am and because you will tell me and you will help me be who I am. Thank you for all the different markers that you've given us that helps us be different, Father. But we come today in the name of Jesus, and we bring every identity marker, Lord, every part of ourselves that, that identifies us and perhaps makes us feel a little different than the other person and makes us unique and, and even makes us special. We bring every one of those things and also the things that we don't like about ourselves, that we think you should have made different or, or why did you do that? We bring all of those things and we put it before you and we say, Lord, you are the Lord of all. We submit everything to you and we say, Lord, come. Help us to judge with sober minds, to have the right temperance, to balance things in the right way so that we can know who we are in you. And I thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with me today. May the Lord be with you. May the Lord bless you. Please join us next week. We're in a great time as we continue on with this series. And uh, know that we love you. And I trust that God will help us to have great conversations about these things. Bless you.